Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. This is Psalm 37, a Psalm of David. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, we can give it up for him. Thanks for doing that. He is, he is much more uh, uh, inclined uh, and preferred to stand at the door and loving you guys than come up here. So that was a real act of service and worship to Jesus. I'll just tell you that. Uh, it's just a testament to who he is. But All right, well, if you'd like to take notes as we walk back through verses 1 through 8 in Psalm 37, I've got a nice, light, and airy, happy-go-lucky sermon title this morning. If you'd like to take notes, the title of my message this morning is Walking Among the Wicked. Good morning. Walking Among the Wicked, or Living Among the Wicked. We'll come back to that in a moment. As you're jotting that down, I want to ask you a question this morning. I want you to evaluate your life, evaluate where you're at today and some of the habits in your life, and ask yourself this question. Who do you go to for advice? Who do you go to for advice? Who are the one or two people that you have on speed dial or speed text At any time you're inquiring about some general rule of life or some general practice in life, you think, I got to call them. I got to reach out to them. I care what they have to say. And sometimes this is, you know, dependent on whatever it is you're going through. I realize we go to different people for different advice for different things. But generally, who do you go go to for advice? The second question that I want to ask as a follow-up is why? Why them? Why do you go to them? What is it about them that provokes your interest in what they have to say in their advice? Well, there could be a number of reasons to answer this, but I would wager that the most common reason why we go to the people in our life for advice is because we have come, to some degree, to trust in one of these three things, either their experience in life, their tested and trusted wisdom, or maybe their expertise. I could think of just yesterday, we had a little medical issue in the household. I won't give you too much information. It has to do with children and foreign objects. That's all I'll say, unfortunately. And the first thing I did in that moment was I thought, who has the most experience, wisdom, and expertise? And I made the phone call. You know, I didn't just call, like, let me just call, like, one of my old friends. Hey, what do you think I should do about my child? They're like, why are you calling me about that, right? I immediately thought, who can I trust? Whose wisdom can I employ and implore? Whose expertise and experience would be most helpful? Well, being that's a main reason for why we go to people for advice, it's also a great reason for why we should heed the advice and the words of Psalm 37. Psalm 37 is written by someone whose wisdom, experience, and expertise we can trust. It's the great King David. 
But, but this is really important to point out. This isn't King David as like the shepherd boy in Bethlehem. Psalm 37 is not advice from King David as the slingshot slinger, you know, in the, in the, the valley of Allah. Nor is this even King David as the king of Israel. Psalm 37 is written by David in his last years, in his oldest age. I want you to think David, he's, he's been through some stuff. He's older. There's gray hair. You, you look into his eyes. You ever ask advice from someone like this? You just look into their eyes and you're like, those are the eyes of someone who, have, who has seen some things who has been through some stuff. Look at what David says in, in Psalm 37, verse 25. I love this. I have been young, David says. <laughs> I have been young, but now I'm old. David's writing as someone who has lived and been through a lot. You look at the life of David at this point. This is someone who's experienced the extremes of life, both war and peace. David's experienced both wealth and poverty. David has experienced victory we know David's experienced defeat. He's experienced loyalty and love. He's also experienced betrayal and dishonesty. David has experienced both the joys of blessing. And this is also someone who has experienced the grief of loss. David's a man who's been through failure and success. This is the kind of guy you want to go to for advice. This is the kind of guy who is an expert on what it looks like to walk through life. And, and specifically, we actually have a focus in this passage on what David's field of expertise is. I'm sure there's a lot that David could speak to in his old age, you know, like how to kill a giant. That would be a great seminar a workshop I'd like to attend. How do I kill really tall people, David? How do I do that? Which is weird. Why do you want to do that? But no, Jordan, I'm, I'm sorry, bro. All right. Um, or, or whatever, fill in the blank. How do you ascend the, the, the social ladder? How do you tend sheep? Uh, you could just go on and on and on and, and kind of uh, sift through the different files of, of, of topics that David could speak to. But here in Psalm 37, it, it's rather unique, the thing that David has become an expert in. The thing that David has become an expert in is how the righteous ought to walk among the wicked. Now, if you know the story of David, you know this is his story. David seeking to be righteous, tempted towards wickedness himself, but called after God's plan for his life and in the way and along the way faces opposition from wickedness at every single turn. Now, let me kind of back up for a second. Psalm 37 is all about the wicked and the righteous. This is what David has to say to us in his old age. And I don't want you to picture him as just like this angry, like old religious person that's just become disgruntled and critical with life. And he's like, all right, pull up a chair. I'm old now. I'm going to talk to you about the wicked, all right, and the righteous. Like, don't have that picture in your mind. This is actually a beautiful poem that David's writing. In the Hebrew, Psalm 37 is written as an acrostic, meaning it goes in alphabetical Hebrew order from the first verse to the 40th verse. And many people believe that the reason why David did that was because it would help people memorize the psalm and really you know, latch on to the wisdom he gives. But this is what he talks about. This is, his, this is the, the poem he writes about, the wicked and the righteous. Now, uh, just for a second, let's talk about this, this concept. The word wicked in Psalm 37 is used 14 times. The word righteous is used nine times. A quick definition of what we mean when we use this word. That's definitely a heavy, almost old-school Bible word. It's kind of a cringy word a little bit, like wicked. Ooh, this could be rough, you know. Here's a simple definition of the wicked. Who are the wicked? What is the wicked? And who are the righteous? The wicked. We see through Scripture that the wicked could be characterized as those who have turned in rebellion away from the goodness of God. This is wickedness in Scripture. Those who have turned in rebellion away from the goodness of God to go after their own sinful way of life instead. That's kind of wickedness in a little wicked nutshell, all right? A little wicked nutshell. It's wicked, all right? Those who have turned in rebellion, here's the goodness of God. We can think back to the very beginning of all creation. Here's the goodness and the blessing of God. And God, instead of going your way, I'm going to turn away from your goodness and blessing. I'm going to go my own way instead, which is the definition of what sin is. The result of that is all sorts of brokenness and harm for everybody involved. The word the Bible uses is, it doesn't mince words here. 
It's not just an error. It's not just a fault or a flaw. This is called wickedness. Okay? And I, I want to take a moment to say, before we think about them and they, our minds can immediately go to those in political power, the elites, or whoever fills your brain. I want you to remember what Ephesians chapter 2 says about our own testimony and salvation. You know, Ephesians 2 says that prior to Jesus saving us, resurrecting us, changing our hearts and lives, the Bible says that we were alienated from God as enemies in our wicked works. The difficult thing about Scripture is that wickedness is a lot closer to home in our own backgrounds, our own lives, and our own tendencies than we'd like to admit. Nope, it's, it's easy for me to say, I'm flawed. I got that. How about this one? I'm broken. But to say and admit and agree with God that my sin is wicked? I'm wicked? I've turned in rebellion away from the goodness of God. I've gone after my own sinful way of life instead. In fact, the Bible says all of humanity has done this. <laughs> Wickedness is the human course. It's what's wrong with the world. It's why I would... Um, just submit to you, we live in a wicked world. We live in a wicked culture. You read Romans 1 of what wickedness looks like, approving of things that God calls evil and, 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 and practicing the same things. Wickedness, it's a real, a real thing. Now, on the other hand, you have this other division. So the Bible has no problem with this division. Uh, Jesus even says that at the end of time, the angels are going to sift through and divide up the whole world in two categories, the wicked or the righteous. The wicked, judgment, the righteous, eternal life. Now, who are the righteous? The righteous are those, now, this is the, we want to be that, okay? This, these are who we want to be. Those who have turned to trust in the salvation of the Lord and seek after his way of life instead of their own. Now, the key thing that I want you to understand about the righteous is, is the righteous are not, in Scripture, primarily marked by their behavior and their patterns. They're marked by their faith in salvation. The righteous are made righteous by faith. That is the primary characteristic of Abraham. Read the book of Romans 1 through 4. I've been going through Romans lately. Romans 1 through 4 really hammers this down. What makes someone righteous is not that they're a good, outstanding, moral person compared to their neighbor, the word for that in scripture is self-righteous. I'm righteous, why? Because I'm better than you. Whoa. That's the ugliest kind of unrighteousness. But biblical righteousness is defined by this humility that recognizes my tendency toward wickedness, but I have turned to trust in the salvation of the Lord. I've turned back to him. I've come to his goodness. I've been saved through his goodness. And what this produces in my life now is a righteous pursuit. I'm seeking to live after his way of life. Even when I'm tempted to go to my own way of life, I know I've been saved by him and I'm called to follow his way of life. And a right, this is what's so great about what scripture says about this. The Bible says this. The Bible says that a righteous man may fall down over and over again, seven times. It's a picture of completion, like over and over again. Righteous people fall, by the way. Righteous people are imperfect. David in this passage is, is in the category of the righteous. And if we're just looking at, the, at the, the, the details of his life, you'd be like, nah, he wicked. All right, that's what you would think. But righteousness is not about perfection. Righteousness is about pursuit. It's about faith. It's about pursuing the way of Jesus. The righteous are those who have turned to trust in the salvation of the Lord and seek after his way of life instead of their own. Now, when you read Psalm 37 you have this compare and contrast of these two kinds of people. I encourage you, read all 40 verses this week. It's a beautiful comparison, a study on the differences between the characteristics of their lives, how they treat each other, how God relates to them. Psalm 37 talks a lot about um, their futures. What is the eternal futures of the wicked and the righteous? But, but in the first eight verses that we begin with reading, we have a, a special category that David speaks into. It's the most instructional out of all 40 verses. And in the first eight verses, what you have is David giving instructions for this, how the righteous ought to walk among the wicked. Now, as I said, there is a day coming where Jesus is going to draw a line of delineation. He's going to separate the sheep and the goats. 
Jesus tells a parable in Matthew 13 about a fisherman catching a big net of fish and simply separating the good fish from the bad fish. I can eat that and keep that. That's good. And that's a puffer fish. I don't know if you can eat that, but I'm throwing it back in the water, okay? Jesus talks about this delineation. Now, we got to be careful because only God knows the wheat from the tares. Only God knows. That should cause us to both tremble, because I can fool man, but I can't fool God. That should also cause us to show grace. And remember, I'm not God. I should be slow to speak, to just say, that's a wicked person. Well, what about your own wicked? So we've we got to be careful. There is a day coming, however, when that delineation will be marked once and for all. The wicked, those who have turned away from the Lord, will be judged, and the righteous will be rewarded. Now, in the meantime, here we are. In the meantime, we are, my desire and my hope for Solus Church, we are those who were alienated from God and wicked works, but here we are, we have turned to trust in the salvation of the Lord. We've been saved through Jesus Christ the righteous, who became our wickedness on the cross, that we can become his righteousness. Now, now here we are as those pursuing righteousness, and we are surrounded with, mixed with, mingling with wickedness all around us. Everywhere we look, there's wickedness. We see it on TV. We see it on the internet. Chill out with the internet a little bit. Um, we see it at work. We see it in everyday life. We see it on the news. Whatever your source of content is, you, you're aware of this, that we are those who are seeking to walk with Jesus among the wicked. I don't know if you've ever come face to face with the challenge of this. Like when people and their wickedness get in the way of what's righteous. You could call it American culture, is what you could call it. So, so David speaks specifically into that. How do we do that well? This is so important, okay? Wickedness is going to be inevitable in a broken world. So for those of us who are righteous, we ought to know how to navigate this. There, in other words, there is a right and wrong way to navigate wickedness. There's a way that will destroy more people around you and even you, you yourself. So, so what David does is he helps us out. He gives us a couple don'ts. And a couple do's, which is the best advice, right? I mean, that's really what you want from someone. Tell me what to do, and more importantly, tell me what not to do. And that's what David, David gives us. He starts with, with two don'ts. Two don'ts. I don't know how to spell don'ts. Like, I was like, is it apostrophe T, apostrophe S? That's weird. I've never seen, like, a double apostrophe. So, all right, whatever. You could tell me how not to do that next time. How about that? All right. David starts with two don'ts for how the righteous ought to live among the wicked. The first thing he says, in, if you're navigating a wicked culture, he says, first thing, what a great encouragement. Don't fret because of evildoers. Second, don't, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. This is where David's advice starts here with what not to do. He gives two don'ts that actually, if you think about them, they're really two extreme tendencies that we as the righteous following Jesus can fall into. We're tempted towards one of the two of these extreme dangers. On one extreme, it's kind of the religious hothead that loses his cool over all the wickedness going on and suffers spiritually because of anxiety and worry. And on the other extreme, you have the person that says, I'm just going to join in. I'm just tired of being mad about the wickedness. If you can't beat them, join them. The person who's tempted to go along with the flow of culture and not resist it at all. You have both extremes. So let's start with the first one. Don't fret. Now, the word fret, I love this word. I want to use it more. Okay? I'd love to see our culture just develop our vocabulary to include the word fret. How are you? Are you fretting lately? All right? Don't fret. What? It's just, and there's something about it. Like, it's like, thank you. Like, somebody's saying that. It's different than, like, don't worry. It's like, everyone says it. Don't worry. But, like, to be like, don't fret, it's like, now I'm listening, okay? The word fret, it's really, it really means that. Most of the time it's used in Scripture. It's, it's, mean, it's used to mean worry. Um, and worry, by the way, doesn't mean not, uh, to not worry doesn't mean don't care. 
we got to emphasize that. He doesn't say don't, don't care. Don't care about what people are doing. No, he says don't be consumed by what you care about to the point to where you're uncontrolled. And it's interesting, this word fret specifically, it speaks of an angry worry. Have you ever been angrily worried? You're like, what am I feeling? I can't pick the emotion, okay? I'm angry and worried at the same time. That's what this word means. In fact, uh, the, the language... In the Hebrew, it speaks, in its root, it speaks of getting hot, of burning with worry. The idea is getting heated, okay? Uh, Losing it. You're you're, you're popping off, all right? And so when David says, don't fret, he's literally saying, don't lose your cool. That's what he's saying. Things are going crazy. Have you lost your cool? Have you boiled to the point of exploding, okay? He's saying, keep your cool. Uh, It's interesting, he goes on to kind of unpack this a little bit more, not just there in verse 1, but in verse 7 and 8, he says, he kind of gives a little commentary on this, he expounds on this, he says, don't fret, he says, because of him who prospers in in his way, it doesn't say don't care, but it says don't lose your cool in your cares, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Now, we, we can see versions of this each and every day where we see the wicked do wickedness and then get away with it. And he's like, don't lose your cool, care don't fret. He says, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. And I love this verse. It only causes harm. Isn't that true? It only, like Jesus said this. He said this about worry and anger. He says, who of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? That's what Jesus said. He, Jesus, Jesus has us evaluate our life and he goes, I want you to think about in the long term, what has your explosive anger and, and just obsessive worry, what is it positively produced in your life? Just look back and go, now maybe in a moment you're like, man, I got really angry and I, so I acted and look at what happened, fixed it. Okay. Long term, how are things now? How's that relationship? Okay. How's your soul? Are you still consumed by those things? And so Jesus says, so first of all, Jesus says, um, don't worry because it doesn't produce anything positive. To lose your cool over the things in life. To, to not have self-control. But then the psalmist says, in addition to not only the fact that it doesn't make anything positive happen, it does the opposite. It only causes negative. That's what he says. It only causes harm. It causes harm to you and your soul, your well-being. It causes harm to those around you. Like most of the time, I think when we're angry, what we really want to do is help something, don't we? We're like, I'm angry about this. I want to fix this. I want. But listen... You won't help. You'll just harm if you do it in explosive anger. If you do it in a spirit of fretting and heatedness, if you don't keep your cool. You know, I want to kind of create a counterbalance here. The Bible says this, be angry, but don't sin. Anger is a biblical, it's a godly emotion. There's one issue where people are too angry and explosively angry about things. You know what another issue is today, especially in the Western church? People aren't angry enough, man. There's things to be mad about. There's things to care about. But make sure in your anger, you're not fretting. So, so the first thing, don't, don't, don't lose your cool. Okay, be concerned without losing your cool. But notice the other extreme. Also, don't be envious of the workers of iniquity. Uh, This kind of harkens back to our study in Psalm 73. Do you remember Psalm 73, this other extreme? In Psalm 73, we we looked at the the honest struggles of a spiritual leader, which is really rare nowadays. A lot of times we think that the best way to lead people is with my strength, but sometimes the best way you can lead someone is with your weakness and connecting with them and saying, hey, hey, me too. I'm I'm human too. Jesus came for the sick. We need him, okay? Okay. And, and Psalm 73 is that. It's, it's Asaph, a spiritual, you know, a worship leader in Israel who's talking about how he's getting so sick and tired of the fight against wickedness in the culture that he was tempted to join it. In Psalm 73, he says this. He says, oops, wrong verse. Here we go. Psalm 73, almost there. I'm not fretting. Verse 2. But as for me, look at this, my feet had almost stumbled. He's like, I almost tripped up. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What an honest confession. By the way, it's okay to say this in community. We should be in community so that this isn't the voice that we're just speaking in our own heads. Like, 
One of the, the greatest gifts I have to my own relationship with Jesus is people in my life who I can be like, hey, just want to get it out there. Here's what that little voice in the back of my head is saying. Let's put it out there. Okay, I don't want to be my own counselor here. Can, can, I, can we just get it out in the light so we can rebuke it? And that's what he's doing. He's like, I, I got to a point where I was just getting tired of following Jesus. It's exhausting. It can be exhausting. When you're just up against resistance, when you're up against opposition, he goes, I almost slipped into a life of godlessness. I almost gave up on this thing altogether. I almost became envious, or he says, I was envious of the boastful. And so the psalmist, and David rather, in Psalm 37, he begins with two don'ts, okay? Those two don'ts, when wickedness is flowing all around you, here's what not to do. Cease from anger. Be angry, but do not sin. Care, but don't lose your cool. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Don't fret. At the same time, don't compromise. Don't be envious. Don't get caught up with the culture. Uh, then David gives a few do's. So he doesn't just tell us what not to do. He tells us what to do. This reminds me a lot of, you know, I'm, I'm uh, discipling my son Judah in the ways of skateboarding. I am his rabbi. He is my teacher, sensei, student. And he's getting pretty good. Like, I was not that good at his age. In fact, I'm probably getting to the point where I'm not as good as he is now, as I am now. And um, I really shouldn't be caring about being good anymore, by the way, either. I should just be, like, you know, wanting to go fast like Ricky Bobby at the skate park. Nothing more than that. But it's a Christian movie. Kirk Cameron's in it. Um, but... Um, part of helping Judah become a better skateboarder is it's like, hey, don't, Judah, no, don't put your foot there. You're trying to do a kickflip, but the way your foot's there, you keep blocking the board when it's trying to come around. And they say, now, now do this. Put your foot here. So don't do this. And now David's going to say, that's what not to do, but here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do. David gives a few things of what we ought to do as those living and walking among the wicked. And it's really helpful. Notice this, verse 3. Here's what to do. Trust in the Lord. What an encouragement for people living among wickedness. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. There's four commands he gives even in this verse. Trust, do, dwell, and feed. Trust. Trust. He says, trust in the Lord. Trust in him. What's your trust in? Is it in the Lord? Are you trusting? Trust that God is good. When things around you are bad, when things are wicked and seemingly out of control, trust that God is good. Trust that God is here. He's not absent from the chaos. He's not distant. He's not disconnected. When wickedness is running rampant, trust that God is in control. Trust that there's a day coming in, in, the, in, the, in the balances of justice for all eternity. It's going to be taken care of. Trust that. Trust in the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord? Does your life display a trust in the Lord? You go, yeah, I trust. I'm a Christian, Andrew. I am a truster of God. I trust in the Lord. Here's a question I would ask you. How much do you trust the Lord? How much... Now, I don't know if you've noticed this. I've definitely found this to be true. I, I found that trials in my life, they're, they're often the uh, most effective tool in both God and life's hand to test the, we could say, the truth of my trust. God, I trust you. He's like, well, I, you do. I see your faith of great faith. Oh, you maybe of little faith, but hey, it's faith. I see it. You tr it's there's your trust. You've walked through some, some stuff, and, and here's the trust. But maybe God's saying, but I'm calling you to trust me like you never have. I'm trying to grow trust in you. So now I'm going to walk you through something that is going to test how much you really trust me. Because i gotta, I got to reveal to you where your trust is at and where your, where your faith is at and maybe where your doubt is at or your unbelief is at so that I can develop it and, and grow it. You know, I kind of think of, a uh, few, few weeks ago, 
the family and I uh, have a good friend who, who let us have a water day on their jet skis. Sketchy and awesome. And uh, after ripping around uh, myself, I brought Evie and Jude on. Everybody's fine, but um, got Evie on. And at first, it was like, come on, Dad, you know this? Like, come on, just trust me. Come on. And they go, okay, Dad, I, I trust you. And they get on. And then it's like, okay, now we're going to go in the water. We get off the little thing. Oh, hold on. Okay, trust me. And then I start riding, and, they, and all of a sudden they go from, oh, to, <laughs> you know, they start like, they start getting excited, having fun. And then, and then you know, you get through the slow wake zone, and you, you get to that open field, the Audubon of the intercoastal, where you're like, we're going to have some fun. We're going to fly, all right? But you're like, small child, small child. Okay, small child. So I go, so you start revving it. Dad, dad hey, trust me. And then all of a sudden they start having a little fun. And then they get to that comfort zone. And I remember I got to this spot with Judah, not Evie as much. But Judah, I said, okay, buddy, we're going to fly right now, all right? I want you to think about your life, your, everything. This, it's about to flash before you. Okay, here we go. And I just got, what a time, all right? I won't tell you how fast I was going. Um, it, was a, it was a safe speed, um, relatively. But um, you see, along the way there, I was, I was leading him to trust me. How much? A little bit more, a little bit more. And oftentimes, that, that's what God is seeking to produce in us. Do you trust the Lord? Trust in the Lord. How much? Is he growing your trust right now? Has he revealed to you the truth of the extent of your trust? Not if you trust, but how much? And maybe he's trying to develop you to a place of greater trust, a greater faith. I'm so excited for the fall as we walk through Hebrews 11. It's all about faith. We're going to talk about what does it look like to trust God and to live a life that displays that. Notice it's more than just trust. This is so applicable when you're living in a, in a wicked culture. Trust in the Lord. It would be easy if it was like just that. Like, okay, God, I'll trust you. But he's like, also do some things. And do good. And do good. Uh, be busy about doing good. This is such a, a great um, and challenging encouragement, I think, for a lot of us. Uh, in, a, in, in a world of evil... Become busy about doing good. You know, those are really the best kinds of people, aren't they? I love people like this who don't have time for all the drama because they're too busy getting things done for Jesus. They're just too busy doing good. You know what I found? I found especially in my life that it's easier to just point out the bad than counter it with doing good. Like, I think as Christians, we're pretty good at that. Like, we got that one down, right? We stand up for what's true and good. You're wrong. It's like, well, what are you doing about it, though? It's also, you know, that's easier, but it's less impactful. It's so much more influential when you have a group of people who aren't just willing to call evil evil and good good, but they model another way. I wonder how much more open the world would be to our criticism if they saw what we were living and said, okay, I see what you're saying, and I want that instead. Not just verbal critiques, but a life that's backing it up. He's saying, get busy about doing good. It's so much easier to just call out the bad. I love Galatians 6.10. Therefore, I love this, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all. Let us look for every opportunity to do good to all, especially those who are of the household of faith. Doing good to God's people. That's, that's the first thing. Like The world looks on and they go, the way that you guys treat each other, it's like your family. And we go, yeah, we are family. And we share the gospel about what, what's true about that. Do good to the household of faith, but also to all. Now, what's really interesting about the Greek word all is that it, it includes all people. The Greek means all. <laughs> even them. Even they. Even those. Do good to all, even your political enemies. Do good to all, even your wicked neighbors. Do good to all, even those, Jesus says, who aren't doing good to you. Bless those who persecute you. That's, our, that, that's what we have going for us as the church. So we have a testimony to the good deeds we do. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2 that it's the reason why we've been created in Christ Jesus. We've been created to do good to all, even the household of faith. Um, I, and I didn't... You know, I didn't ask him to share this, but I just thought of my brother-in-law, Roberto, who 
Um, and is it cool if I share about your neighbor and the car? Okay, thanks, bro. I just got his permission, all right? I think that was your permission. He said, yeah, whatever, yeah. He's like, what? Uh, and I remember um, kind of going back a, f- a few months, Roberto and Ashley having some challenges with, so- with some neighbors and, and kind of having to walk through that. Do you have, by the way, do you have challenging neighbors? Let me say this again. Do you have neighbors? Okay, neighbors. And, and it was, I remember um, being up at our men's retreat and, and uh, Roberto asked for prayer. We, we prayed for him because God was putting on his heart um, just all the different ways that he could, with one neighbor in, in specific, how could he, instead of just being frustrated with those things, how could he just be a blessing to his neighbor? So if you know Berto, you know this is what he's done with a couple of his neighbors. He's a gifted um, woodworker, woodsmith. He's good with carpentry. And so he, he made one neighbor a cutting board, and this other neighbor we prayed for, for Berto as, as God put it on his heart. I'm going to bring him a Bible. I'm just going to knock on his door and say, hey, man, uh, Jesus loves you and has a plan for your life and gave him a Bible. And so I, I just, you know, I glorify God for what he did in your heart, Berto. What, a, what an awesome example for, for what, what we're called to, this is what, like, this should be normal. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, this is how we are to approach the wickedness. Be busy about doing good. We were created in Christ Jesus for good works like this. Notice the next part of it. It's really helpful. Don't just trust in the Lord and do good. I love this. Dwell in the land. It's the next encouragement. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. So you're in a culture of wickedness. What should I do? Trust in God. Trust even more and more. He's building our trust. Look for ways to do good. Don't just call out the bad. Model the good. And this word dwell in the land, this phrase is really interesting. The land there isn't just like America. I'm going to dwell in the land of America. You know, it's like the word land there, it's specifically about the promised land. where God's people now at this point have been for some time. But there is a time where the promised land, where they've become comfortable, was once a prayer request. God, God, bring us into the promised land. The land flowing with milk and honey. The land of God. This is really beautiful language to describe how sometimes we can get used to the things we once desperately prayed for. Our families that... Can be diff- you prayed for that family. Our marriages, you, you prayed, even them, you prayed for them. You prayed for them. And just go on and on and on. There's language here to say, listen, even when things are, you can spend your life losing your mind, angry about everything else around you, or you could, in addition to being honest about what's around you, take a moment to start just dwell, make your home with gratitude for what God's done. Make your home in a place of peace. Become a peaceful presence in a chaotic world. People see you as like, you're you're dwelling. What's up? God's just been faithful to me. That's the idea. Dwell in that land of promise. Don't move on. Don't just get used to the blessings of God. Don't get comfortable and used to the grace of God in your life. What what now is maybe a a normality was once a prayer request. Remain thankful for every blessing in your life. Uh, and, and, and as you're doing that, I love this, feed on his faithfulness. That's such a cool, cool uh, word picture. It's that of sheep grazing and, and getting nourished um, by God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness is a lot of things. But here in Psalm 37, I love this, it's food. That's so cool. It's food, feeding on God's faithfulness, coming to the table and allowing God's faithfulness to be food for your soul and your memory to feed on. Uh, so here's my question this, uh, in light of this. Like, what's your diet? On a day-to-day basis, let's be honest with ourselves, what are you feeding on? Your news feed? Your Instagram feed? Your Facebook feed? Okay. What are you feeding on? You could turn on the news, and you will encounter two things every time. Or turn on your favorite app or go to your favorite website. You're going to encounter both man's foolishness and fearfulness. Like, I have to, every time I watch the news, I have to pray before and I have to pray after, you know? Because I know I'm just going to be like, uh, I'm fed by it. And I can get disgruntled with all the foolishness, and then I can become influenced by the fearfulness. Look what they're going to... 
And, and it doesn't mean don't be honest about foolishness and fearfulness, but you have to ask yourself the question, is it what you're mostly feeding on? Where in your diet is God's faithfulness? It's important to remember that, and this is true in many ways, that we are shaped by our food. I know I am. We're shaped by what we feed on or what we don't feed on. And this is also true of your spiritual life. If you're wondering about your own spiritual formation and what's going on, trace it back to what you're feeding on. Are, are, you, are you someone who comes to the table on a daily basis and in the midst of a wicked culture, you're not just so conscious of what's wrong around you and what's scary around you, but you're like, God has been faithful to me and that's my primary food. He, has sent his son, he was faithful to send his son Jesus at just the right time for me. He saved my life at just the right time. I'm dwelling in the land. I'm living in his blessing. I'm feeding on his faithfulness. And it shapes me. It nourishes me. Eat it up is what Psalm 37 says, the faithfulness of God. Look at this next verse. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Remember, the context here is a wicked culture walking through that. David says, delight yourself also in the Lord. Now, this is really cool. He's saying, feed on what the faithfulness of what God has done. But in your like delight of the blessings of God, in your gratitude for all that you have because of his grace, your home, your family, your life, your job, your health, all those things, as you're going through the lists of gratitude, make sure also in there, and you could even say primarily, is a delight that's just in God himself. Isn't that great? Delight not just in what the Lord can do for you. Don't just be happy about what he's done and what he's given. But let the, the gifts bring you back to the goodness of the giver. And this is what, what true Christianity is. It's delighting in God. We can very easily make Christianity out to be, well, idolatry. Where God is the means to some other delight. Where, where God is the way that I get what I really want and really that's broken. The gospel isn't all that you get and all that you get to have and all you get to possess, the good things that you get because God has given them to you. It's you and I, we get God. He is our portion forever. He is the joy of our heart. And so delight in him. Delight in him. Find, what this means is find joy in who the Lord is. That's just such an easy but hard thing to do, right? It's hard because we're so distracted, but it's easy when we focus. God, I'm going to draw my joy in who you are. Look, like, and what's cool about this is because of who God is, no matter what's going on around you, you can always have a source of joy. Isn't that awesome? You're like, my life, right, maybe right now you're like, my life is not very delightful. Maybe you're like despising your life. You're despising what's around you. Delight in the Lord. Delight in who he is. Find joy in his character. And look at this promise. So this is an action with a promise attached to it. As you delight in him, he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, let's talk about this verse. How many of you have heard this verse before? All of us. It's like the Philippians 4.13 of the Old Testament, all right? Um, this verse doesn't mean that God is going to give us Every and anything that our little hearts desire. You give God, your word says, hold on. God, your word says that you give the desire. This is, by the way, the danger with like just verses of the day. Oh, verse, like what's the context? Okay. All right. In fact, James says this about kind of the posture we can have with things like this. James says in James 4.3, he says, you're asking, you have like, God, where's my fulfillment of my desire? He says, you ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You're not delighting in me. You think I'm, I'm a genie in a bottle that's here to give you... No, that, that's not what this is about. This is not about, about you know, kind of uh, presuming upon God what I want. And because I went to church, because I read my Bible, because I said I committed my life to you, therefore you're going to fulfill X, Y, and Z. God, there's my plan. Go ahead and bless it. Remember, that was the second temptation of Christ, wasn't it? Presume on God. Jump off the temple. I'll even like, use scripture to back it up. He's not going to allow your foot to be dashed against a stone. 
this is a tendency that we can have with a verse like this, just assuming that God is, is supposed to bless each and every and any desire I have. There's, there's a proper sequence to this. The idea there is, I ultimately delight in the Lord. It's not, it's not wrong to have desires. It's dangerous to be led by evil desire. But, but what happens is when I delight in God, when he is the, the chief delight of my life, what God begins to do is he begins to change out our desires. Have you noticed this? Like, it's not so much that God changes our lives as much as it's that he changes our desires. He changes our hearts. God, God told Israel in Ezekiel, he said, I'm going I'm to give you a new heart. And, and put my spirit in you, and then cause you to walk in my ways after I change your heart. I'm going to lead you to desire different things. And you can bet that when I put a desire in your heart, it's not a carrot on a stick. If, you de- if, if I put within your heart a desire to be close to me, I'm not going to be far from you. You can experience my presence. If I put within you a desire to be filled with my Holy Spirit... I'm not an evil father who even knows to do good things for their kids. If you ask me for my spirit, I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. If you delight yourself in the sight of the Lord, you can bank on the fact that he will bless you with everything he knows you need. What an incredible promise. Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness and all the things that God knows we need will be added to us. Amen? All right, let's wrap this up. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. Walking within a wicked culture, walking among the wicked, seeking to be righteous, but I'm surrounded by wickedness. There's a tendency for me to fret and get angry and blow up and and get heated. God calls me to keep my cool, not to compromise, remain convicted, but don't worry. I got to trust in God. Whatever's going on, it's an opportunity for me to trust him more than I used to. Trust him more than I do than I did yesterday. I gotta trust him more. I, I gotta feed on his faithfulness. I need to be busy about doing good. I, I need to do everything and anything I can to remember his faithfulness and feed on that. Let that be my food more than anything else. That will change me. I've got to delight ultimately in who he is. And then there's this life posture that says, I've got to give my life to him. I've got to stop taking control and taking, taking the reins of my life. That's actually the, the literal language of here. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. The, the idea there of, of the way speaks of your life. The word there, commit, in the Hebrew, it speaks of rolling a burden off. Some of you, one of the main reasons why you're living with such paralyzing anxiety is because you are the one holding the weight of your life. You are the one trying to bear the weight of what you're walking through. You're the one who's playing God in a sense in your life. And and the psalm says, here's a better way. Maybe you've been trying to bring some things to pass in your life through your own control, through your own hard work, through your own, you you know, because in life that's how it usually works. If I work hard, I'll get it done. I put in the work, I'll get the results. And this is why the kingdom of God is counterculture. Jesus says things like this. He who seeks to save his life is going to lose it. But he who commits his way to me, he who loses his life for my sake, then I'll bring it to pass. Then he'll find it. What, what an incredible call. Another action with another promise. Roll the weight of your life to God. Stop trying to build that business on your own. Stop trying to raise your family on your own. Stop trying to be a Christian on your own. Stop doing it on your own. Commit the weight. Roll the weight and the burden of your life onto God. Just say, God, I'm not strong enough. This is my max. I need a spotter here. I need you to step in. Take this weight off me. I can't do it. I need you to do it. I'm just going to And this speaks of surrender, right? Beautiful surrender. God, you drive. I'm going to trust you. You're the one that's going to bring it to pass. And look at this incredible promise about this. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Um, This is such great hope for the Christian who's overwhelmed by the wickedness around them. There's a day coming where wickedness will be no more. Wickedness won't have the spotlight. 
but the righteousness of Christ will be on display. Righteousness will reign through eternal life in Christ Jesus. Righteousness is the future. Righteousness is the nature of God's kingdom. And justice is going to flow like rivers. This is where we rest. God, you're going to do this. You're the one that brings about righteousness. You're the one that produces the things I'm praying for. I'm going to trust that. I think this is a great uh, posture that we should have with our nation right now. Um, There's nothing wrong with Christians wanting to bring righteousness to the land. Like, that's why we're here. Seek the peace of the nation by which you've been sent to to live. But there's just something about a posture that says, God, we can't make America righteous. We can't make our, like, you got to do it, Lord. And we're going to stop being God. We're going to stop thinking that we're the ones that, you know, this kind of like idea that that God is distant and here we are, we're left in charge. No. I'm going to commit my way to God. I'm going to give him my life and say, God, you bring it to pass. That doesn't make me apathetic. That makes me surrendered. And this is a beautiful heart to have. And I'll invite the band to come out as we close with this last one. We just want to sit in this. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Here's the encouragement. Um, Are you tired? Are you tired from all the news and all the corruption and all the chaos and all the nonsense, all the foolishness and fearfulness? Are you tired of all the effects of sin in this world? Are you tired? Are you exhausted from trying to walk with Jesus in a culture like ours right now or even just in, the, in a home or just even in, in a life like your own? David says, um, come take a rest. Just, just stop. Rest. You don't have to wait until heaven to enter your rest. Rest in him. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: 28. Come to me, all you who, are labor, who labor and are heavy laden. Jesus says, just come to me. Just come here. Come here. Stop. Come here. I'm going to give you rest. Take my way of life, my yoke. Yoke was a, was a first century euphemism for a, a rabbi's um, form of teaching, his set of teaching. Take my way of life upon you. Learn from me. This is what we're going to be doing for the next three weeks in our series, Everyday Discipleship. What does it mean to actually practice coming to Jesus and going, I want a new way of doing this. You're the master. I'm the student. I'm the disciple. I want to learn from you. You're gentle and lowly in heart. The only passage in scripture that speaks to what God's, uh, Jesus' heart is, gentle and lowly. He says, and you will find rest for your souls. Here's what you're going to find when you come to me. What you desperately need. What you've been looking for. The rest you've been looking for. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you walk with me, it's not going to be more exhausting. It, it's not going to get easier. That's not, he doesn't promise that. All of a sudden, the weight of life goes away. He goes, no, but when you walk with me, I equip you to walk through it with me. You can do so with a posture of rest. So my question to you this morning is, how are you walking in this culture right now? How are you navigating this moment? Are there some things that you need to not do? Face those things. Are there some things in response to that you, that you need to start being busy about?